Well, thank you, Daniel, and good morning, everybody, and uh, Happy New Year. Um, you know, it, it's, I may be a little bit weird, but New Year's is actually one of my favorite holidays as a Christian because it reminds me that we worship a God and have a God of new beginnings, who gives new life, and whose mercies are new every morning, and don't we need that? So think of those things as you celebrate New Year's uh, this tonight. <clears throat> Well, as we finish out the year, uh, we are, as Daniel said, back to the book of Hebrews. And since it's New Year's Eve, God's timing could not be more amazingly perfect because our text today, which is Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, contains several points that would make for some very good New Year's resolutions. Hebrews chapter 13 is the last chapter of this book, and it is unique and different from the other 12 chapters that we've already studied. Those other chapters, the first 12, were all focused primarily on matters of doctrine or truth, primarily the fact, if you recall, that what we have in Jesus and under the new covenant is so much better than anything that existed under the law or the old covenant or the Jewish religious system of a works-based type of righteousness. Chapter 13, in contrast now, is all about how should we live in response to all that we have in Christ and to all that he has given us. And so I've borrowed for the title of this message from the title of a book written about 50 years ago by the theologian Francis Schaeffer, which was this. His title of his book was, How Then Should We Live? How Then Should We Live? And that's really what this message is all about. Because that is the most logical question that we can ask in response to what we have seen in the first 12 chapters of the book of Hebrews about how Jesus is better and why he is better than anything that existed before. The question then is, how then should we live in response to that? Now, our text this morning actually flows out of the last two verses of chapter 12. So let me read those, Hebrews 12, 28, and 29, to set the context here, and you'll see what I mean as we get into it. So Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see, it is in grateful response to what we have received in Christ, which is entrance into this unshakable kingdom that verse 28 talked about. And it is in recognition of the fact that although our God is a consuming fire, as verse 29 says, that we who have trusted in Jesus for our salvation will not be consumed, that we are then to worship him with reverence and awe in how we live. And all of this is made possible only by the mercy and grace of God. So in our six verses this morning, God is going to call us to live in loving response to this amazing mercy and grace and to live in a certain way and to do certain things. So let's read those six verses now to see what these things are. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What we see here at the end of Hebrews 12 and these first six verses of Hebrews 13 is a definite pattern that can be found in many of the New Testament books where God first teaches about his mercy and his grace and all that we have because of that and then calls us to respond to it in how we live. The book of Romans is laid out very similarly. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are all about the wonderful doctrines of grace. And it's the most complete exposition anywhere in Scripture of all that that means. But then when you get to Romans 12.1, it's a switch now. It's now how do we live in response to that grace? Listen to what Romans 12.1 says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then the book of Ephesians is the same way. The first uh, three chapters there are all about the doctrines of mercy and grace. And then Ephesians 4.1 then says, because of all those things, we are to now walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then it goes on for three chapters to talk about how we should live. To use the words we just read out of Hebrews 12.28 about acceptable worship, the acceptable worship that we are called to here, that we are to offer to God, consists of six things that we've just read in Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. And those are brotherly love, number one. Number two is hospitality to strangers. Number three is compassion for those who are in prison or being mistreated. Four is honoring marriage and marital faithfulness. Number five is contentment. And number six is not fearing man. Now, of course, this is by no means an all-inclusive list of everything that God wants from us, but trust me, it is more than enough for us to ponder this morning. Now, since God's Word tells us here that these are ways that God wants to be worshipped, that's what 1228 was saying, that these are some of the offerings that He wants from that verse as well, we can probably conclude then that if God were to come and evaluate how well a church was doing, these are some of the things that he would look at. These are also different forms of obedience that God wants from us as individual Christians. For you see, and this is really important, mercy and grace do not negate obedience. Let me repeat that. Mercy and grace do not negate obedience. Rather, they should motivate it. Yes, as the first 12 chapters of Hebrews has meticulously explained, what we have in Jesus and in the New Covenant is far, far better than the law in the Old Covenant. But God's desire is still that his people would live righteously. That has not changed. However, what has changed is the motive for our obedience and the power by which we do it. The motive, you see, is no longer like it was under the Old Covenant so that we can somehow earn or deserve a right standing with God but instead it is now out of gratitude for the salvation and the right standing that God has already given us in Christ. And then the power for obeying him is no longer found in our own flesh, but rather it's in the power of God himself who lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell every person who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So the goal of obedience doesn't change but the motive and the way we do it does change. And what we see in verses 1 through 6 are also all commandments. 
But Jesus, remember, said in Matthew twenty-two forty that all of the commandments depend on the two greatest ones, to love God and to love others. So notice here how all of the things listed here are rooted in love, brotherly love, hospitality towards strangers, and compassion for those who are in prison or who are mistreated, all flow out of love for others. Honoring marriage and faithfulness to the spouse that God has given you all flows out of love for God and love for your spouse. Contentment with what God has allowed us to have or not to have flows out of love for God, as does not fearing man. You see, both the reason and the cause for all Christian behavior is to be love. Jesus said in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.5 that the aim of all of his teachings, which was about a third of the New Testament, was love. Love is also, besides being the reason and the cause for our behavior, it is also the best evidence we have that we've really placed our trust and confidence in Jesus. Jesus said in John 13.35 in the upper room, the night of the Last Supper and of the foot washing, that the whole world would know that we are his disciples by what? by our love. 1 John 3.14 says that we know that we have passed out of death into life, meaning we're saved, we have eternal life. Why? It says because we love each other. 1 Corinthians 13, the great love section of that book, tells us in the first three verses that no matter what great works we do, no matter what amazing spiritual gifts we may have, if we have not love, we are nothing, absolutely nothing. So, besides being love-oriented, the things that God is calling us to here in Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, are also other-centered. They're either centered on God, or they're centered on others, or both. You see, a healthy relationship with God isn't all about seeking the blessings that He can give us, or about what we can get from Him. Rather, it is about using what God has already given us to bless Him and to bless others. And that brings him glory. Everything in these verses, besides being about love and besides being other-centered, also presents us with an opportunity to glorify God. Whether it is to glorify him in our love for each other, or in our hospitality towards strangers, in our compassion for those who are suffering, in our marriages, in our sex lives, in our contentment, or in what we fear and don't fear. Also, the outward behaviors that are spoken of here in these first six verses reveal some heart attitudes that are very, very important to God. One of them, as we've seen, is love. But there's also kindness, and there's compassion, and there's contentment. These are all very important things God wants to see in us. So now, let's go through these six things in detail so that we can learn a little bit more about them and hopefully put them more into practice in our own lives. The first one is brotherly love. Verse 1 says... Let brotherly love continue. This concept comes from the Greek word phileo, from which we get the word Philadelphia, which means city of brotherly love. Now, phileo was a type of love which always sought to serve others and always sought to do what was best for the other person. But note that verse 1 of our text says that we are to let brotherly love continue. It doesn't say we're to create it or start it. We're to let it continue. That means that it is something that we already have, that is already there, that God has already given us, a gift from him. 
We just need to make sure that it now continues. It's much like in Hebrews, the early part of uh, excuse me, Ephesians 4, where we're told about our unity in the Spirit that comes from the Spirit, but then we're told we need to be diligent to preserve it. Same thing here. The brotherly love comes from Him. It's made possible by Him. We need to continue it. How is it made possible by Him? Well, He died for us to take away our sin, and He rose again from the grave to give us new life so that we could now be children of God and thus brothers and sisters with Him and with each other. So now he is just calling us to continue on in what he has already made possible for us. So brotherly love then comes from our identity with Christ, our our oneness with Christ. Brotherly love is also evident all throughout that great model of prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever noticed, go back and read it if you don't believe me, that there are two very commonly used words in our everyday vocabulary that we use all the time that are conspicuously absent from that prayer. They are the words I and me. Everything in it is framed in terms of us, our, and we, because it's all about us being in a family. It's all about us being in relationship with God and relationship with each other. It's not just about us. And so as we seek to continue growing this next year in the brotherly love that Jesus has given us, we need to ask ourselves, What are some of the things that could hinder us from having more of that in 2024? And there are two obvious ones that the Bible speaks about at length that we have plenty of already, and those are pride and self-love. That is why the opening verses of Philippians 2 tell us that if there is any comfort in, guess what, comfort in love, it then says we should do nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from selfish ambition, or from conceit, which is pride. But in humility, we should esteem others as more significant than ourselves. You see, the the Bible teaches other esteem. It doesn't teach self-esteem. It's other esteem. Next, let's look at the second thing we are called to, which is in Hebrews 13, 2. It says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So the second thing we see here is that we are to show hospitality to strangers. Now, obviously, on a simple level, this would simply mean to be someone who welcomes others into your home. And many of you do that here as you host small groups, which we have coming up. And it's a great season of the church as we get to go inside each other's homes and get to know each other better. In ancient times, this would have also meant to let travelers, particularly Christian travelers, stay in your home as they were passing through town, especially because there were very few inns or lodging places back then, and the few that there were were usually pretty dirty, pretty crowded and unsafe, generally filled with thieves and prostitutes. You know, Marriott's, Hyatt's, Hilton's hadn't been invented yet, let alone Ritz-Carlton's or, or Terranea, so people stayed in each other's homes. But the Bible actually calls us to something more than just welcoming people into our home. It calls us to be hospitable people. In fact, that is one of the characteristics that 1 Timothy 3 lays out must be present in anyone who is in church leadership. So what does it mean to be a hospitable person? Well, the best and shortest explanation that I have ever heard from didn't come from a commentary, came from an 18-year-old female student in one of my classes, and she defined it this way. It's beautiful. She said, hospitality is making people feel wherever you are, like they're at home. 
making people feel wherever you are like they are at home. You see, in the ideal scenario of home, things are familiar, things are secure, things are safe, and things are comfortable. So out in the world, even among strangers, that is how we as representatives of Jesus Christ should make other people feel. And in fact, that is the actual meaning of the Greek word that's used here for hospitality. It was philozenos, which literally meant from philo, lover, and from xenos, strangers. It meant a lover of strangers, someone who would do that. But note that Hebrews 13.2 also tells us that there's a really neat little blessing that just may happen to us when we show hospitality to strangers. And it is that without knowing it, we may end up entertaining an angel. Now, how cool is that? Now, some people try to be party poopers and take all the fun out of this verse by saying, well, the Greek word used there for angel, angelos in the Greek, could mean either an earthly messenger from God or a celestial one. And so this can't possibly mean angels. It must just be referring to earthly messengers, the kind of the traveling evangelists that would go through the towns in the first century. But look at the text. The text says that if this happened to you, you would be doing it unaware, meaning you wouldn't know it. Well, don't you think if you were hosting an evangelist in your home, that within a few minutes you'd find out he was an evangelist and then know he probably wasn't an angel? So if this is referring to an earthly messenger, um, it's not, you wouldn't be unaware in that case. So the ver it couldn't make sense that this is only earthly messengers. Plus, there are many examples in the Bible of angels being all over the place. Elisha saw legions of them in the, in the skies. They ministered to Jesus. They, they spoke to Joseph. They spoke to, to Mary. Um, in Genesis 18, we have, we have um, uh, Abraham entertaining three angels and throwing an elaborate feast for them. And then in Genesis 19, Lot does the same thing. And they don't know they're angels. We're told they are, but they're just strangers that come passing through. And they entertain them, and they turn out to be angels. Plus, many of us have had experiences randomly meeting a complete stranger who in some way really blesses us and then sort of vanishes from sight and completely out of our life. And in fact, Hebrews 1.14 at the beginning of this whole book said that angels are actually ministering spirits to us as believers. So this stuff is real and it really happens. Now, verse 3 of our text gives us the third thing that we are called to here. So let's read that. It says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you were also in the body. So we're called here to remember those who are suffering in some way, in this case, either in prison or being mistreated. But listen, remember them does not simply mean to have warm thoughts and fuzzy feelings about them. It certainly means at a minimal level to remember them in your prayers, to pray for them. But in light of what we have just seen about brotherly love and showing compassion to strangers or hospitality to strangers, it also means to do what you can to love and comfort those who are suffering. Now note the emphasis here is, in, is on doing this for persecuted believers because the last part of the verse tells us that we are in the same body with them, which would be the body of Christ. So that is referring to believers here who are in prison or who are mistreated. In fact, Jesus so closely identifies with his people when they are suffering that he says, says at the end of Matthew 25, the, the, the section about the sheep and the goats, 
that when we have visited those in prison and visited those who are, in sick, who are sick, we have actually ministered to him when we have done that. That's how closely he identifies with his people when they are suffering. But the important thing here is the heart attitude behind this, whether it's Christians, non-Christians, prison, hospitals, wherever it is, someone on the streets. The heart attitude that's behind this is a heart of compassion. And that is something that is supposed to flow out of us as followers of Jesus Christ to all people, not just to other believers. We see this with our Lord. At the end of Matthew 9, the section that ends with the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We're told in Matthew 9, 36, that when Jesus would look out at the crowds of people that had come around and all the villages and cities he went to, it says he would have compassion on them. These are people that didn't believe in him yet. He had compassion on them. And it tells us why. It says it was because he saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Because of that, he had compassion on them. And that is exactly how we brothers and sisters in 2024 should see all the believers around us. They are the way they are because they are disconnected from the one who created them to be in a relationship with him and they don't yet have Jesus as their shepherd. That explains their behavior. We should have compassion on them, not get angry at them. Next, in Hebrews 13.4, we move from showing love, kindness, and compassion in these random outside encounters with people to showing the same thing in the most intimate of all human relationships, and that is marriage. Here we are told this. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So we're told both to honor marriage and to not defile the marriage bed. Let's unpack why and what that means. Well, simply put, the reason that we should honor and hold marriage in high esteem is because our God does. He created marriage. This was his idea. He even invented sex. That was also his idea. And God has a very, very high view of marriage, and so should we as followers of his son, Jesus. I want us to take a little detour here and consider some of the ways that the biblical record shows us how highly God views marriage, because we would all do well to have this same view of it ourselves. It would help us in our own marriages. It would help us help brothers and sisters who may be struggling in marriages. So consider these points. Marriage was the first human relationship that God ever created before that of parent and child or brother and sister. Marriage was the first human institution that God created before that of family or church or government. And it is the only human relationship and the only human institution that God created in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, and which predates the fall of mankind. When, marriage, when the first marriage occurs with Adam and Eve, and we get the marriage basically commandment there, we see that marriage is a covenantal relationship, which reflects God's nature as a covenantal and covenant-keeping God. And that is so important to God that he put a prohibition against violating this covenant in his top ten commandments. Marriage is also the most intimate of all human relationships, and the only one God created where we become one flesh with another human being. That happens in no other relationship. 
in the joining together as this one flesh of the image of God that's reflected in the male form and the image of God that's reflected in the female form, there is a witness to the world of both the existence of God and of the nature of God. In the Old Testament, God uses marriage over and over again to picture his relationship with Israel, so much so that when they turned their backs on him, he would often accuse them of having, having committed adultery against him because he saw it as if he was married to them. And in the New Testament, the same thing is done with respect to Christ and the church, so much so that we are referred to as the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. And after Paul teaches extensively on marriage, at the end of uh, Ephesians 5, he then says, well, I've just told you about marriage. No, he says, you know what? I just told you about the mystery of Christ and the church. Everything he told us about marriage, he says, was actually about Christ and the church. So they're very closely identified in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. There are two whole books of the Bible found in the Old Testament that are all about marriage. There's the Song of Solomon, which is all about the beauty and the wonder of sexual intimacy within marriage. And then there's the book of Hosea, which kind of takes the other side of it, in which God tells the prophet Hosea to actually go marry a harlot named Gomer and stay married to her and stay faithful her to her to prove to wayward Israel that I will not waver in my love for them. Now, yes, at the end of the story, they, they get back together in a right way, but what an amazing picture that God uses of, of staying faithful to a wayward wife to picture how he is always faithful to us, even when we turn on him. The Bible tells us that God is actually in the middle of every marriage relationship, and it's not just the Ecclesiastes passage that says a, a, stra a cord of three strands is better than two. Malachi 2, verses 14 and 15 tells us that God is a witness to all that goes on in our marriage. And it then goes on to tell us that he puts a portion, I don't know how he does it, but he does, he puts a portion of his Holy Spirit in each marriage. And of course, Jesus, remember, says that, that what God has brought together, let no man cast asunder, so God brings us together. God so highly values marriage that Malachi 2.16 says that he actually sees divorce as an act of violence. Why? Because it's a tearing apart of that one flesh that he is part of. He then goes on to tell husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7 to spend time with their wives and to treat them in an understanding way or else guess what, God says, your prayer life isn't going to work. Your prayer life's going to be hindered if you're not treating your wife the right way. That's how important marriage is to him. We're told in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 that a sign of the end times when those verses say the hearts of most will grow cold towards Jesus and will turn away from him, one of the signs of that is that it will be accompanied by false teachers arising who are encouraging people, guess what, to not be married. <laughs> That's how closely marriage is identified with who God is and what he values. In the Mosaic Law, specifically Deuteronomy 24.5, a newly married Jewish man was to be free from any military or civil service for the entire first year of marriage in order to enjoy spending time with his wife. The first miracle that Jesus performs and the place at which he finally begins to reveal publicly that he is the long-awaited for Messiah is where? It's at a wedding feast, a Jewish wedding feast, which was a party. They went on for seven days. So much of a party that when he had to make more wine, he made 120 gallons of it. So marriage is the thing God says, celebrate. This is awesome. And when we die and go to heaven, we all get to go to, guess what? The wedding feast of the Lamb. 
Now, going back to our text in Hebrews 13, 4, thank you for letting me do that little digression, we see that God views even the marriage bed and the sexual intimacy of it as something holy. Because he says there, don't defile it. And you cannot defile something that is not holy. So he sees that as holy. And we see that he will then sit as judge over those who unrepentantly persist in defiling it. I think that's enough for now for God's high view of marriage, but I hope you all get the picture of how highly he views it and how we need to view it. Um, And I want to give you some good news. That is that um, starting the first Sunday after Valentine's Day at 5 p.m., we're going to run an eight-week-long marriage enrichment course here that we have put together. So I would encourage all of you to keep that on your radar screen and maybe, maybe come to that. For people who are married, people who are thinking of getting married, we'd love to have you, have you come to that. All right, so in our next verse, Hebrews 13.5, we're going to see that this concept of contentment, which we're certainly to have with, with the spouse that God has given us, is now going to flow into contentment with, which, with that which God has seen fit to bless us with, materially speaking. Let me read that. It says, keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong or sinful with money. In fact, it's a convenient thing that God allowed someone to invent money, because before that, you had to lung along, you know, bags of shells and necklaces and all kinds, you know, pelts of animals and things to trade with someone because everything was barter. So money made life more convenient. There's nothing wrong with money in the, in the, in the sense of its creation, that was a blessing. There's nothing even wrong with having lots of money or having a little bit of money. We're told here and elsewhere in Scripture not to love it. That's the issue. And that should remind us of 1 Timothy 6.10, which tells us that the love of money is the cause of all sorts of evil. You see, the love of money will lead to discontentment, and contentment is that heart attitude that God wants here. And it leads to discontentment because if you love it, then you're never satisfied with what you have. In fact, the more you have, the more you're going to find you want. And then that leads you to do things that may be sinful to get more of it. And sometimes it's obvious sins, like lying or cheating or not paying taxes or stealing. But other times, it can be things that are not so obvious, like maybe not paying a decent living wage to those who work for you cheating them out of what is theirs. Or maybe spending too much time at work that you neglect your duties to your spouse or your family or your church. Or maybe it's putting yourself so far into debt that you can't really provide for your family. You see, God wants us to trust him with these things and to love him, not the money. And There are places in Scripture where God does tell us to work hard. We're not to sit in our duffs and expect him to dump things on us. In in the Timothy letters, we're told to to not even um, fellowship with one who won't work hard to support themselves. But without without negating God's call on us to work hard, he still wants us to trust in him to be the one that we see as providing for us and not to trust in ourselves. And even more than that, he wants us to accept the fact that whatever he chooses to provide or not provide is what is absolutely best for us. In essence, speaking of the Lord's Prayer, we are to have a heart that is saying to God with respect to our possessions and our money, Lord, give me my daily bread. 
and I will be content just with that because I'm going to trust you to bring it to me the next day as well. In the words of a popular Sheryl Crow song, Soak Up the Sun, from about 20 years ago, she said this, it is not having what you want, but rather wanting what you have that matters. Sometimes secular artists hit on a biblical truth. It's not want, having what you want, it's wanting what you have. That's where contentment comes from, being satisfied with it. Now, as we move to the end of our section of Scripture, we see at the end of verse 5 and then moving into verse 6, that whatever we have, materially speaking, or do not have, we still have Jesus, and he has promised to never leave us. Let me read verse 6. It says, um, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And this is right after it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, we still have Jesus, no matter what our material circumstances are, and he has promised to never leave us. Do you realize what a blessing that is, that you always have Jesus with you? You know, it's what he gives his disciples to reassure them shortly before he ascends to heaven at the end of Matthew. He reminds them, I will never leave you or forsake you. And looking at our verse here, since he is our helper, as verse 6 says, we need not therefore fear anything, that man or circumstances can do to us. And you see, that would have been very reassuring to the Jewish converts to whom the book of Hebrews was written because it was not uncommon at all in their day for them to lose their jobs, lose their homes, and be ostracized from their families and their friends for having chosen to follow Jesus. But the same truth that's behind this continues to apply to us today, even though we don't live in those same circumstances. Think of this. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And 1 John 4.4 reminds us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The great Puritan writer, John Owen, put it this way. He said, the best way to find comfort and hope in our times of suffering is to compare the power of Jesus to help us, as this verse says, with the power of man to hurt us or oppress us. Because guess what, brothers and sisters? The power of Jesus is always greater. He's going to win. Now, all of this is very wonderful and very true, but there's a catch. We will only find Jesus to be our helper when we have first allowed him to be our Lord. Look at the text. It says, the Lord is my helper. It's very similar to Psalm 23, which begins with those words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see, he's only the shepherd, and you only shall not want if you first made him the Lord of your life and let him control what you have and what you don't have. And as Lord, as our verses say here, he always comes to help, not to crush, not to hurt. Isaiah 42.3 says that a bruised reed he will never break. So this morning, we have seen some of the standards that God wants us to live by and some of the things that glorify him, which would make great New Year's resolutions for 2024. We've seen things like loving others, brotherly love, being hospitable, having compassion on others, honoring marriage and staying sexually pure, not loving money and being content <clears throat> and not fearing man. And it's important we remember as we move to a conclusion that although we can grow a lot, lot more in doing these things, None of us can and none of us ever has kept these things perfectly. We have all fallen short, which is exactly why we need Jesus 
as our Lord and Savior. He is the only helper that saves us and keeps us saved. He is the only helper that sanctifies us. And he is the only helper that will one day glorify us with him in heaven. So if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what are you waiting for? How much more help do you want to go without before you receive him? Today is the day to do that. Now, none of us should ever think that doing these things, whether you accepted Jesus today or you accepted him 40 years ago, we should never think that in doing these things, we will somehow save, sanctify, or glorify ourselves. That is all the work of Jesus. But as people who have truly believed in him to do these things for us, to save us, to sanctify us, to glorify us, he now expects us to seek to live the way we've just seen in these first six verses. And he wants us to want to live that way. And wanting to live that way, even though we don't do it perfectly, desiring to live that way is the surest sign we can have that we have actually put our faith and trust and confidence in him as our Savior. <clears throat> now, since we've talked so much about love this morning, there's one more thing about love running all through this um, that I want us to see before we look at one or two other points and then we'll close. And it's this, whether it is in showing brotherly love, hospitality towards others, or compassion to those who are suffering, or showing love in our marriage, or whether it's in not loving money, but instead being content with what God has given us, or in not fearing man, but instead trusting God. We all need to see that true Christian love is a verb. <laughs> it ushers itself out in action, not just a mushy, gushy emotion or feeling. True love leads us to do positive and beneficial things and to refrain from doing negative and harmful things for the object of our love. That's why Jesus says all the commandments depend on those first two, to love God and love others. Because I love God, therefore I don't take his name in vain. I don't have little idols before me. Because I love my fellow man, I don't steal his wife. I don't lie against him. I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. They all flow out of, of love, and love causes us then to do things and refrain from doing things for the object of our love. And that is the kind of love that Jesus has shown us. He brings us what is positive and beneficial, and he refrains from doing those negative and harmful things. And we're just to show that to others. Now, besides love, there's one other really cool common thread that runs throughout these six verses, and this is the main point we'll close on. It's something that's actually seen in many places in the Bible, and it has to do with the unshakable kingdom that Daniel talked about last time that we read about again this morning in Hebrews 12, 28. In our verses this morning, you see, we have seen several places where that unshakable kingdom, which is not seen by us now, actually intersects with the visible world in which we currently live and that will one day be shaken to utter and complete destruction. Consider this. In verse 1, we saw that there is a brotherly love that's made possible by this one who came from that unshakable kingdom to make us children of God and thus brothers and sisters with him and with each other. In verse 2, we saw that in our hospitality to strangers, we may end up actually ministering to spiritual beings that come from that unshakable kingdom, i.e. angels. In verse 3, we saw that we are somehow connected to suffering brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because we're all one body in Christ, in this unshakable kingdom, and he is the king 
of this unshakable kingdom. And so that when we minister to him, we're actually ministering to our brothers and sisters, actually, we're actually ministering to him as our king. In verse 4, we saw that marriage comes from God who dwells in this unshakable kingdom and that he is a part of every marriage and that he has made marriage, including the marriage bed, sexual intimacy within marriage, a holy thing coming from this unshakable kingdom. And then in verses 5 and 6, we saw that we should be content with what we have or don't have and that we should not fear man because God is our helper. So in each of these things, you see, there's a connection between the temporal material world in which we now live and the eternal spiritual realm of God in which we will one day live. In fact, remember back in Hebrews 12.1, just a few weeks ago, we saw that we are somehow surrounded by, remember what? A great cloud of unseen witnesses, believers that have gone before us, who are now in that eternal and spiritual realm, the unshakable kingdom. So whether it is the love we have, the love we make, the love we give away, or the love we receive, the truth is that we're surrounded in all those things by this spiritual realm. And this is the realm of the unshakable kingdom. And it is more real than the world we live in now, than the chairs you're sitting on or the floor your feet are on. In fact, it's the only permanent realm that there is. The second part of 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this, for the things that are seen, all this stuff around us, are transient, meaning they're, they're passing away, they're going by. But the things that are unseen, which is this unshakable kingdom, those are eternal. In view of this truth, the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis referred to the whole world that we live in here as nothing but the shadow land. Nothing but the shadow land. And you know, the author of Hebrews actually talked a lot about shadows too. He said that the old covenant things that the readers of his book were still clinging to were just shadows of the reality that is in Christ. In Hebrews 8.5, we were told that what the earthly Old Testament priests did and all of their sacrifices was but a shadow of the heavenly things. In Hebrews 10.1, we were told that even the law is but a shadow of the good things that are to come. So as we begin a new year, one final thought from Hebrews 13, 1 through 6 is this. Great as what God has blessed us with in this life can be, and just by living in the South Bay, we're, we're unbelievably blessed people. So we need to be grateful for that. But great as it all is, this is not permanent. And this is not the best that there is. For those who have accepted Christ, the king of this unshakable kingdom, the best is yet to come. And it is this everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? So here's a final parting thought then to turn that all into a New Year's resolution that will encompass all that we've seen this morning plus a lot, lot more. For 2024, we need to stop living as if there is some kind of secular, sacred divide, which is how a lot of us live. And by that I mean we've got one foot in the secular world in which we dwell and we've got another foot in this permanent reality of the unshakable kingdom um, that surrounds the temporal world. Hebrews 11 taught us, if we learned one thing from that hall of faith, that people of faith know that this world is not their home. And they know that they are just sojourners passing through here on that way to that celestial city in the unshakable kingdom whose builder, we were told, is God. And as we have seen, this heavenly realm 
has invaded and intersects with this secular world in numerous ways. The Bible even says that every believer already has their name written in a very special book in that unshakable kingdom, the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Bible also tells us in Colossians 4 that, or 3 and 4, that we are citizens already of this unshakable kingdom. So let's start living like that for 2024. But if you are not part of this unshakable kingdom, this life and this world is the best it's going to get. And what is to come is far, far worse. But look, the king of this unshakable kingdom came to this earth to live in this temporary realm. And he came as a human being like you and me to live a life that we could not live, which was an absolutely perfect life, not stained by any sin, so that when he was put to death on a cross, God the Father could put yours and my sins on his shoulders, on his back, so that he could pay for them and we could have forgiveness and be one with him. And this king died as a perfect and complete sacrifice for our sins. That's one of the messages in the book of Hebrews. And his father, the God of heaven, accepted that sacrifice as our entrance card, as our passport to that unshakable kingdom. How do we know that? Well, he proved it to us. He proved that he accepted it because he resurrected the king who came to do this back from the dead. So if you don't know this king, put your faith and trust and confidence in him to save you today and accept him now as your Lord and Savior so that you too can be part of this unshakable kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've not left us helpless here to figure these things out or, or speculate about them on our own, but you've made it very clear to us, Lord, that... Um, there is an unshakable kingdom, and you sent your son so that we could be part of it, Lord. May we live more like citizens of that kingdom this year in 2024, Lord. May we um, be people who are, are just motivated by the mercy and the grace that you have shown us, that we would then show love back to you and show love to others. May we as a church be known for our love uh, in the year 2024, and may that bring you, Jesus, all the glory you deserve. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.